This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Hello and welcome to the Wingren podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. Today, we welcome Jason Schulweiss onto the show. Jason is the EVP of Brand Partnerships and Creative Studio at Morning Brew. He is both thoughtful and interesting and has a lot of insights to share. Let's get into it. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to chat with you. Me too. So I have followed your career for a while now. It's incredible to see all the success you've had and the success Morning Brew has had most recently. But I want to start from young Jason. Okay. How were you from originally? I am a Manhattanite born and raised. So I have been in New York City my whole life, minus the four years I was at Michigan. And my wife is also actually a uh, native New York City person as well. So, Oh, nice. So you're from Manhattan and then not do untraditional path from New York to University of Michigan? <laughs> exactly. And right back, which is, it's funny because, and I'm, I know we'll get there, but there are deep, deep Michigan ties at Morning Brew as well. Oh, for sure. Were you a Ricks or a Skeeps guy? Oh, I would say probably more so Skeeps, especially I'll say, I'll say earlier on post 21. <laughs> and, and then after, you know, towards the end is I think when I, I started going to Ricks a little bit more. And I was also a, a vortex throwaway from Ricks. Nice. <laughs> what did you study in school? I double majored in psychology and political science, which has both nothing and everything to do with what I do today. And it's interesting because I think psychology is obviously understanding like people, who they are, how they think. And political science, I did not necessarily enjoy, but it taught me how to write, I think, and, and speak and convey points in a clear, concise way. And so combining those things, I think, makes me a, hopefully, a better sales and marketing professional. I like to tell myself that anyway. I would say the things probably that I learned most in school happened in between and outside of class. And you graduated in 08, not the best time to enter the workforce. (laughs) (laughs) I would say probably 09 was worse, but 08 was not great. And I I got an unpaid internship after school because it just was, to your point, just not, not the best time to be looking for a job. Where was that internship? So that internship was at a digital agency called Deep Focus in New York. It was one of the first like digital and engagement agencies around. And I had no experience doing like digital marketing, but I got this internship and very, very fortunate that I could afford to be an unpaid intern, you know, for a couple months. And I really fell in love with digital media and marketing. And from there, I was able to get, you know, like a media coordinator job and then a, you know, media buying and planning job. And then from there was there is kind of like the rest is history, but very lucky that, you know, I kind of fell into that. For sure. And when you were in school, is did you want to go that route or did the market kind of dictate where you were able to work after school? I think the market kind of dictated that. And I'll say that maybe there was some universal juju happening behind the scenes because one of the things that I really started to do in school outside of class that I was talking about before is 
I don't know if it still exists, but there was a party at University of Michigan called Splash Bash. And when I was a freshman, we had gone up to, and I was in API, the fraternity, and we went up to Western Ontario to go to that this same party by the same name that they threw there. And I was looking at it and I was like, you know what? I think I could do that here. Mm-hmm. I think I could do that in Ann Arbor. And so we brought the concept to Ann Arbor and that was actually my first experience in like securing a venue, selling tickets, selling sponsorships, like doing all those kinds of things. And that is actually more directly what I ended up doing, like at different stops in my career, like at Thrillist, that was like a big thing of what we did was like events and marketing and sponsored events. And then I was at Live Nation and that's, you know, Live Nation's business. So it was very fortuitous that Defocus ended up being kind of like the professional stepping stone to those things. So you were the guy behind the scenes that enabled everyone else to party and have a good time in in school. Correct. I had my fun, but I think I have a responsibility gene in my DNA (laughs) somewhere. And so I was uh, making sure that everyone had a safe and good time. Me too. I could relate to that. (laughs) Serves us well as fathers. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And we were just talking about how we both have kids under the age of ones and we're wearing matching t-shirts. Look at us. Hey. So were you immediately working in sales and brand partnerships? No, the um on the agency side of things, you know, I was doing media planning and buying. So I was working with HBO and AMC, Estee Lauder were a few of our clients. And so, you know, we would get briefs from from them and we would RFP uh different media publishers and and see, you know, how to make a plan that fit the HBO show or AMC launch that, you know, ended up happening. So I got to work on really cool things like AMC Mad Men Yourself was a campaign that we did that won a few awards back in the day. I also got to work on Microsoft Bing. We were their social agency of record also back in the day. And I worked on the campaign that was the first ever brand integration into Farmville Hmm. in Facebook, where if you liked the Microsoft Bing page, you got FarmCash. And that was both very successful, but also showed that likes as a form of like a KPI of success was not really the way to go because we were able to get the brand like a ton of these likes, but there was no strategy as to like how to keep people engaged. And so that was kind of like the turning point, I think, of social advertising 1.0, which was super interesting. interesting. Yeah. And that job exposed me to what the publisher side could be because we worked very closely. And two of the publishers that I ended up working very closely with were Thrillist and Yahoo, which is where I went after Deep Focus. I went to Yahoo for three and a half years, and then I was at Thrillist for a little over a year and a half after that. So that's so interesting that the, you know, the, the farm cash initiative that you worked on, I think so many people wonder, how do ideas like that come to life? Is it an idea from the client, the agency? What goes into bringing something like that to the market? I think inspiration can come from anywhere. I am a uh, you know, a big believer in what I call collecting dots, just like, you know, experiencing things, talking to new people, like collecting people and experiences. And so some of that came from participating in social. And at the time, like, you know, you couldn't really be pitching ideas unless you were an active Facebook user, an active games player on Facebook. And you combine that with what, you know, gamification type strategies and tactics may exist elsewhere. And you've got a bunch of really smart people in a room. I don't remember exactly how it came to be, but you know, Deep Focus was a small integrated agency at the time, which is very different than a lot of agencies that exist now. Like we had media people and creative people and account people all like next to each other 
you know, mashing ideas and perspectives together. And we ultimately came out with some really amazing ideas. And so I like to think that that was like the, the special sauce as to how that particular idea was made. When sitting in, in a role, you know, at an agency, you're often being sold to. And it's so hard to go from that role to the other side where you're the one selling. How did that transition happen? It happened gradually. So, you know, when I was on one side of the house being pitched to, and then I went over to Yahoo, I didn't go immediately into a, you know, a sales role. I went into an account management role, which is still under revenue, working very closely with sales, but, you know, doing a lot of media planning, not, you know, necessarily buying, but planning. And so it was very similar and it was a easier transition into the, what I like, you know, the dark side, which is, you know, being in sales and the publisher side. And then from there did a little social sales at Yahoo, not a ton, then went more into integrated marketing, still everything under, you know, the revenue generating umbrella. But before I really went into the role that I'm in now, you know, I never really was like a field seller. I had done all of these other things underneath the revenue umbrella. But, you know, I think being able to do all of those things has allowed me now to, you know, manage a very large group that has sellers and integrated marketers, you know, and account managers and all of these different groups, being able to speak all of those different languages and bridge them together. Right. And having purview into all different parts of it, I'm sure has been a huge factor in in the success that you've had. I appreciate it. I think it's like a professional empathy. You know, it's like if you can actually put yourself in other people's shoes, like because you've done that job, I think it helps a ton. And, you know, also, you know, kind of shedding your ego where, you know, I haven't done particular jobs. You know, I even I chatted with my sales team recently and really just had an honest conversation like they're better at sales than me because they've been doing that particular job actually much longer than I have. And it was like a very cool moment because I realized that 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 had been like on my mind a lot. I don't know, being able to own that, like what I did know and was good at and what I didn't and bringing that out into the open and not trying to like shield it or shy away from it was a cool moment. Yeah. And, you know, I could tell just from our limited interactions that something that you're really good at is being self-aware and acknowledging what your strengths are and where you have room to grow and lean on other people. Is that a learned skill or do you feel like that that was just intuitive to you? I think... I mean, it has come very natural to me. And, you know, I talked about professional empathy, but I've always thought of myself as a very empathetic person. And I think from a psychology perspective, that goes hand in hand with, I think the term is being a high self monitor. Right. And so like understanding like how you are perceived. Now there's a huge detriment to that, which is like, you can't operate in a, from a place of only how other people see you. But that was always something I was very acutely, you know, aware of and always tried to, you know, adjust. And, you know, a lot of that requires knowing like things that you are good at and things that you aren't good at and when you need to lean on other people and and when not. But I would say the refinement of that has taken a lot of time and did not come naturally because like you need there's like a degree of needing to be okay with with not knowing things and saying I don't know. And that part is tough. I think a lot of that goes into understanding like feedback and how important feedback is in a professional organization and just in any professional relationship. And I think candidly, I probably only got good at giving and receiving feedback this year. 
14 years into my career. What are the keys to being good at giving and receiving feedback? For in terms of giving feedback, we went through management training at Morning Brew earlier this year. And I've done that a few times, but this was the first time where we really, there was a large portion of it that was dedicated to giving feedback. And one of the first things that you're supposed to do is ask for permission. Hmm. Say like, can I give you feedback? And that is, you know, a lot of people, if you just kind of come out with it, you know, what the feedback is, they may not be in a good place to receive it. Hmm. And then it's, you know, you know, it's all downhill from there. But then asking how you asking the, you know, the person how they thought something went, how it went well, you can kind of share what your thoughts there. And then the next piece is that, you know, seeing, asking them how it could have gone better and what they would do differently next time. And always phrasing it as to like, not harping on the past, but talking about like what you can do differently, learning from the past, moving forward. It doesn't need to follow that exactly every time, but those are good things to be thinking about. And then on the receiving end is tough because I believe that the reason why feedback, like a culture of feedback doesn't exist in most organizations is because people are afraid of hurting the other person's feelings or the other person like not reacting well. Right. And so for me, like I wanted to set a really good like precedent and example for my team, like everyone, no matter what role you're at or level gives me feedback. It's great. You know, and it's awesome. And I like, I posted about this actually on LinkedIn and Twitter not too long ago, but like that has been, you're a great follow by the way. I'm working on it. I got verified on Twitter recently and it was like, Outside of, outside of my wedding and birth of birth of my daughter, best day of my life. Yeah. Easily, easily. <laughs> but I think that has allowed me to get better faster because I'm learning in real time what's working and not working because everyone feels comfortable giving me feedback. And my hope is that everyone also starts to feel comfortable. And the amount of written feedback now, because we're all virtual and remote, that is a whole other variable to it. Because if you give me feedback with a period at the end versus an exclamation point at the end, or in ellipses, those mean entirely different things, but like they shouldn't, you know? And it's like, so part of it is like not trying to read too much into how you think the other person is delivering it and just like take the facts of what they're saying and think about it. And you may disagree and you can ask for follow-ups and more detail and all those kinds of things. But like, there's probably, there's some truth, you know, there's some truth there. And so anyway, that was a very, I think, long-winded answer to your, your no, was, question. I, I thought you it. answered it fantastically. It was thoughtful. <laughs> it was concise and, and a really great lesson that I'm already starting to apply. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so transitioning to Morning Brew. So you alluded to it before. A lot mm-hmm. of people from Michigan, founders yes. are from Michigan, right? Yep. How did you connect with them? Yeah. So a friend of mine by the name of Phil Shermer, who he's an incredible dude. He used to be VP of marketing and chief of staff to Frank Cooper at BlackRock. And I know Frank just actually took a big job. And Phil founded also Project Healthy Minds, which is an incredible mental health startup. But Phil is one of those guys where if he texts you like, you got to meet this person, no questions asked, like (laughs) you do it. And that was kind of what happened with Phil connecting me and Alex Lieberman. Mm. And so Phil also went to Michigan and knew Alex from Michigan. Both of them are much younger than me. And, but Phil knew Alex and Phil and I have been connected for a while. And, and so he was just like, you guys got to meet over drinks. And at the time I was at media link and I took that meeting thinking like morning brew is like a really cool company. I subscribe to the newsletter. I like it. 
you know, maybe I could bring them over as a consulting client. But then, you know, I met Alex and it so impressive. He was smart, the vision, the poise, like what he and Austin had already built at that time. And they were hiring for a, you know, head of brand partnerships. And that was not my intent going into, you know, that meeting to, to talk about that role. But as we got to know each other and I was sharing my story and, you know, my career and my experience, because that's like part of the pitch when you're a consultant is like pitching your experience. Right. And it kind of came together very naturally where I had this breadth of experience inside of a revenue organization at a lot of different media companies. And they had aspirations to ultimately be a very big media company. And so whereas most people who are eligible or look at head of brand partnership roles come up, I think specifically through the sales organization, like as a seller, I had this you know kind of like different experience. And I shared like, the how helpful I think it would be to have, you know, someone who can speak all of those different languages underneath a revenue org and umbrella. He agreed. We got along really well. That led to more conversations, meeting Austin. And Austin is also so impressive and smart, like strategic, where Alex was like, had like the vision. And from like a founder duo, I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is incredible. And they went to Michigan. So like, that was cool. <laughs> and then I met the rest of the team. And when you have a startup that has amazing founders, like truly generational talent founders, a incredible product, like a differentiated product, and a team full of people who are smart, kind, and passionate, then it became yeah. a, it wasn't that much of a risk, you know, to, to go to a startup and help build the thing. Yeah. How big was the team when you joined? I don't remember exactly what number employee I was, but it's within one to 20. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Something in there. I think we're now over 230, 230. Wow. The revenue, the sales team that I inherited was three people. The equivalent of that team now is about 60. Oh, wow. At what time horizon was that growth? Yeah. So I joined in July of 2019. Okay. Wow. Um, so a so little over two and a half years. Two and a half years. That's incredible. It's been a lot. And a lot of that has been remote. And, you know, we've been able to retain a lot of talent and, keep the culture. So I'm excited. You know, we have a, an office opening up in a couple of months. We have been without an office for the last two years. So I'm excited to get back into it with everyone. We remain remote empathetic, which means that people can remain remote, go in two days a week, four days a week, whatever works. But I am excited to see people. I've started to do that again, both with the team and with clients. I am extroverted to you know whatever degree. And so getting to see people again is gives me energy. Oh, for sure. So there was big news last year, Insider Acquired. Uh, was it last year? Yes. It was uh, October of 2020. Almost a year and a half ago now. Yeah. So it was almost a year and a half ago. Yeah, it was Q4 of 2020. And it was via, you know, Axel Springer in, uh, out of Germany. But they've got a huge, you know, a huge portfolio now in the US with us, Insider, and most recently Politico. So. Right. Question I was asked by, I think by like five to seven people when the acquisition happened. Yes. And I know that Morning Brew is so much more than a newsletter. But the question was, how does a newsletter company get acquired for almost $100 million? It's a good question. I will try to answer this one succinctly because I feel like I can talk about this for a long time. At that time, we were more than a newsletter. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a podcast. We also had, you know, both kind of B2C franchises 
and B2B franchises. Now, those, I think, would affect evaluation differently. But within both, the, the newsletter audience, and especially one at our size, with our open rates, that is a differentiating factor. Because mm-hmm. what you have at that point is like a degree of trust and a degree of relationship with an audience that is more than an audience like that is a community where they're fans of Morning Brew. Like we have this like one slide in a deck where it's someone got a tattoo, a Morning Brew tattoo on their leg. Like our referral program accounts for like 50% of the people. So it's like people are sharing Morning Brew. They're wearing Morning Brew. Like they are a part of Morning Brew. There aren't a lot of media companies that have that type of relationship with their subscribers or readers or listeners or, you know, whatever it is. And so that value, there's a lot of value there. You know, having that quantity of quality is rare. You know, a lot of media companies try to like back into, like a lot of them have all started newsletters recently. Mm-hmm. They've tried to develop then that one-to-one relationship, whereas they had like kind of like a one-to-many before. Now for us to go from having that size of one-to-one relationship, that gives us kind of a better license, I think, to expand out from there because we already have the hardest thing to get. Right. Like that relationship and trust. So, you know, Axel saw that and went for it. And I'm sure they're happy with their investment. I believe so. Yeah. Speaking to that one-to-one connection, the newsletter specifically, can you share any stats about how big the audience is or what are those success metrics and how they compare to industry uh, standards? Sure. So I can, I can share, you know, we've got, there are just about 4 million people that subscribe to the Morning Brew Daily Newsletter now. Wow. Across all of our newsletters, it's about, you know, like 5.5 or so million at this point. When you account for all of our, you know, videos and podcasts that we do now and events and our social reach, like we're talking about a universe now of over 10 million, which is super compelling. Now, you know, open rate was always the thing. That was like the super sexy metric. And late last year, Apple released iOS 15 because of, you know, privacy standards and things like that. If you were on iOS 15, you know, on any device, Apple would like open the email effectively outside of your phone and then deliver it to you, kind of like inflating open rate numbers. And so we still keep track of that because there are like corollaries that we can look at, like non iOS opens like engagement rates where we see like total number of clicks on things in a newsletter and see how that's changed over time. But we have to rely on that a little bit less now. But we've seen, you know, like ad performance maintain, we've seen readership maintain and continue to grow. And we're very aggressive when it comes to churning, you know, churning people who don't engage and who don't open. So all of those things still moving in the right direction lets us know that, you know, what was once upon a time on the daily, a 40 plus percent open rate, which was Incredible. Insane. Yeah. We know that a lot of those metrics across all of our newsletters has maintained, which is great. So when someone is looking to sponsor a newsletter, Mm -hmm. what metrics are most important to look at when choosing the right newsletter for you? Yeah. Well, first, we will try to talk to them about perhaps a broader, you know, I content idea that can come to life in the newsletter, on our O&O, through branded content, a lot of those kinds of things. Now, if they say, no, we just want newsletter, fair enough. The podcasts are great, by the way. You have so much incredible content. Yeah. Thank you. And so, yeah, I mean, we try to sell it. If someone comes to us and doesn't know, you know, that we are more than a newsletter, because there are still some people that, that know us as that. And so it's incumbent on us and the sales team 
at Morning Brew to make sure that we are using all of those opportunities to educate our partners in the market as to, you know, who we are and what we do. But we still do have some newsletter only partners. And, you know, we do share open rates, both historical and current. We can do that. We share kind of like total potential reach, which is like a list size type of thing. So we look at sends, which is becoming, I think, more of a norm. A lot of our competitors, which, you know, kind of sharing that because open rate is less reliable. And we've got a lot of new kind of KPIs that we talk about that measure, you know, kind of like the ad engagement within a newsletter, which is like the, you know, the clicks and engagement on an ad compared to the total number of clicks in a newsletter. And so we've got a lot of different types of benchmarks that we can talk to our partners about. I love it. So you're the EVP of brand partnerships and creative studio. Yes, sir. What is the creative studio? The creative studio is an incredible entity inside of Morning Brew, helmed by an incredible woman by the name of Elissa Starkman, who she's actually coming up on her year anniversary here at Morning Brew. And that is comprised of creative strategy, which is what we used to call integrated marketing. They typically handle like RFPs, proactive ideas for different clients against our three sales pods is how we're broken out by like B2B consumer and finance. There's content strategy. And the content strategy team works primarily internally with our B2B and B2C edit teams to take, you know, their ideas, what we're doing, package that up, get that, you know, into the more customization funnel. We've got a big branded content team that touches everything from the newsletter ads to the branded content that you see on our O&O to social, to video, to audio. We've got, you know, production team and we also got a research and insights team all sits within the creative studio. That's so interesting. Something that you had said before the podcast, which I found really interesting and it resonated with me, is that you believe that every touch point must be a two-way street and thinks that the worst emails in the world are marketing emails which you cannot reply, which I agree. So how does Morning Brew do that? Like in a one-to-many, I guess you said it was one-to-one, but it is in a sense one from Morning Brew to a lot of people. How do you engage and enable people to re-engage and respond? Yeah, our edit team will kill me for saying this, but hit reply on the next Morning Brew email that you read (laughs) and say hello. You know, they will respond to everything. We've Our editors take a look, our managing editor, Neil, like he's been doing this for years. And we've got a team also that helps manage all the inboxes across every single different franchise that sends out a newsletter. That happened long before that strategy existed long before, you know, I came in hot with my biggest pet peeve being the do not reply email, right? which (laughs) I still can't like fully comprehend how that's a thing. (laughs) <laughs> but we, you know, we're very good about responding to those types of emails. We have a big social team. So, you know, anytime people are, you know, tweeting at us or DMing us, like we're not hard to interact with and engage with. Right. You know, the, and even the, our strategy and insights team, they just launched this product called the break room, which is of the last morning group survey that we sent out. We had over 60,000 people respond, wow. which is also like, a sign of the, you know, the engagement and relationship. But of those people, I forget the exact number, but a lot of them opted into wanting to have a dialogue with us. And so this guy, Mike, now and created this thing called the break room, which allows us to have an ongoing dialogue with some of our most engaged fans and, you know, people who really want to be a part of the morning group community and help us succeed. There's no shortage of like ways that and touch points that we are, you know, we are talking to people. 
Yeah. And I think that one of Alex's superpowers, which is then seen in all the mediums and how you communicate with consumers, is he just feels so relatable. And it really does feel like when he's talking, he's just talking to you and you should reply. Yeah. And he does. He asks like on all his podcasts, it's always like a question. And he is is so good on every social outlet of being true to that word. It's not just like, hey, like, here's a question. I'm not going to respond. Like he gives very thoughtful responses to everything. And, you know, on the new podcast that he's got imposters, like it's all about mental health and entrepreneurship and leadership and success. And it's raw. You know, it's like it's very real. And it's a it's a type of not a type of medium, obviously, because we're doing podcasts, you know, now, but it's like, I think the way in which people are starting to talk about personal things and, you know, even topics that were once upon a time, you know, off limits, we're trying to break into. And I think Alex has done such an amazing job at that. And the way that he does it just comes off so authentic because it's honestly, it's a hundred percent of like who he is. It's incredible. So I've been a happy subscriber to the Marketing Brew newsletter. Love Marketing Brew. How do you determine new newsletters or content to start producing? Yeah, it's a little bit different on the B2B and B2C side. There is always a reason though for what we do. You know, when it came to launching Marketing Brew and even things after that, you know, our GM of B2B, Jacob Donnelly, has this framework where anything that he's launching, like it has to go through a few levels. Like, is this topic interesting? Like, is there enough to talk about? You know, is there room for us to be able to talk about it like in the morning brew way? Or is it like completely flooded? Like, will we not be adding anything to the conversation? And another evaluation point is like, you know, is there revenue opportunity? Right. And so there's nothing that the edit side of the house does that is influenced by like by me or anything like that. But you know, as part of an evaluation process, it's important to know that that is something that can ultimately like help make the company money. That's not yeah. going to necessarily sway things one way or the other, but it's an important part of thinking through launching a new product because every product, every business unit, like, you know, serves a purpose. And, you know, because our content is free, it needs to be ad supported. Yeah. And to that point, what is the main lead indicator of whether it will be a good revenue opportunity? Is it brand driven, asking brands what they would want to sponsor, advertise in? Or is it consumer driven? How are you going to build the biggest audience? Yeah, because the reason why that part is last on the evaluation framework is because I'm a big believer, like if there is a POV, if there is, it's an interesting topic and there's an industry out there there will be advertising and brands who care about that. Right. Like, I think if we did it the other way around, I think that would blur the, you know, the sales edit lines. And we're not necessarily, you know, we're not launching edit things for the sole reason that brands want it. You know, it's largely, it is like consumer based. We know that people are interested in these types of things, that it is an interesting industry. There is a story to tell. And, you know, the revenue will come. Yeah. If it doesn't, then, uh, you know, our next conversation would be very different. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> What's coming up next for, for Morning Brew? Yeah, we've got more B2B launches coming up, which is exciting. You know, niche media is awesome. We've got IT Brew is the next one that launches. After that is going to be CFO Brew, which is super cool. On, you know, the B2C side of the house, we are talking to a lot of amazing creators and talent who have a community and voice. We just brought on very recently Katie Gaddy, who runs Money with Katie. 
and we brought her into the fold and we're helping her grow, you know, her personal finance brand and franchise. And so we're trying to do that now across the board with, you know, a lot of people who have, who are talent and who can create and who have, you know, a POV. And so I think those two things. And then the last point is starting to do events. We've been staffing up an events team even during the pandemic with the the expectation and the hope and anticipation that one day we would get to do stuff again. And I'm going to South by actually in a couple of days. So I'm very nice. excited about that. Like, you know, industry events are back. And so, you know, we think that that is a really ripe, big opportunity for us to, you know, do things a little bit differently. And we're excited about it. Will there be a morning brew event at South by? No, there will be a Jason running around and trying to hold court uh, <laughs> potentially at, at different coffee shops and bars. And so the degree that we can call that a, uh, a morning brew event, there will be a morning <laughs> brew, you know, many micro morning brew events. Right. When you say B2B segments, yeah. is marketing brew considered B2B? Yes. So anything B2B is going to be like industry focused where you can get better at your job. Or your role. Okay, no. so it's not catering to a business, but it's catering to people in business. Yeah, yeah, or a specific industry. So marketing is is an interesting one because there are marketers in every industry and there is a marketing industry. Right. So as far as B2B goes, that's like a vertical and a horizontal. Now, if you think about like retail brew, that is like hardcore people who work in retail. Got it. And so if you work in retail, that is a must read. That's kind of like the core of the DNA of, of what we you know mean by B2B at Morning Group. Got it. I love it. I, I need to check out all of the different newsletters, podcasts, videos. It's been so much fun watching y'all grow and consistently produce incredible, fun, interesting content as you go about it. It's been a lot of fun to be here for the last, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, three years coming up in July. So. Wow. So the last part of the show, Jason. Yes. Is the lightning round. Uh-oh. Got four questions for you and two minutes to answer. So it's the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Is the first question, why is tonight different than all other nights? <laughs> is it Passover already? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Niche four question joke. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> that was great. First question. What is your favorite youth sports memory? Whew. Favorite youth sports memory. I played hockey growing up and we had like the ultimate underdog story at this one point. I played for the New York City Cyclones and we played the Brewster Bulldogs maybe. And to get into like the state championships, we had to beat this team that was like bigger than us, better than us. I mean, they eat us like bad every time. You know, it was like the one game. It was like the, uh, you know, an Avengers end game when, you know, Doctor Strange gave Tony Stark the you know, this is it. This is your one chance. That was like, we did it. I had a golden assist in that game. We beat them. I think it was like three, two in overtime. And it was like the, I can still see it so perfectly in my head and I can still feel the feeling. Triple D close the move on your goal. No, it was, there was nothing pretty about my game. <laughs> I like, it was like sheer will and determination. I was it just like bulldozed through people. Cause that was, I wasn't very fast. <laughs> But it was just, you know, like someone had dumped the puck in, goalie went out to like around the net to try to stop it. One of the guys on my line, this guy, Jake, was very fast, ended up getting the puck before the goalie hit it out in front. And I was just like, I think halfway falling and was able to get the puck in the net. <laughs> Love it. Second question. When yeah. you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? 
I think it was either one of two things. I like, you know, I definitely wanted to be a professional athlete. I mean, as a kid who does not, right. I grew up in a household, you know, my dad was a, an executive and I always saw the way that he spoke publicly and could kind of like command a room. And so, you know, if the professional athlete thing didn't work out, then I kind of wanted to be like that. Nice. You nailed that. The work is still, still, uh, still a work in progress. <laughs> Third question. What is a brand whose marketing you admire most? Wow. I mean, it's going to come off as like, I feel like a lot of people would say it, but Nike, I mean, the way that they don't advertise products, it's like the way that they advertise a lifestyle and a perspective and being able to advertise your like what you stand for and to generate that type of emotion. It's like everything they do is gold. It's incredible. And I mean, that's obviously the athletes that, you know, they're able to tap into and sponsor is also, I mean, that's, you know, the best of the best. For sure. And finally, what is a go-to cause that you like to support? Well, I already gave Phil's Project Healthy Minds a nod earlier. The one that I am very involved with here in New York is the Jewish, or it was the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous that is kind of evolving, but UJA, which is the United Jewish Appeal of New York, where it's not just even about helping you know Jews at home and abroad. It's really the entire New York community and really helping wherever, however. And so I've served on kind of both the raising money side, the distribution side for where those funds go. This is a very inspiring organization. I love it. Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Evan, thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thank right. you. Me as well. You were great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the WinCrid podcast with Jason Schulweiss. As a recap, we discussed Jason's background and how he got into advertising and media, how to give and receive feedback effectively, and the incredible rise of Morning Brew, which you got to check out. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Evan Brandoff. See you next time, everyone. Play on. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow Leagueside on LinkedIn and Instagram at leagueside underscore. See you next time.